Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. In this episode, we're going to discuss Latinx and more specifically Afro-Latinx representation in comic books in general, share some examples of Afro-Latinx superheroes, and introduce the hero of this episode, Miles Morales, Spider-Man. Since this episode focuses on Afro-Latinx art, we'll then discuss the creation of Miles Morales as Spider-Man as a comic book figure, as well as the storifying and geometrizing of his Afro-Latinidad. We'll further the conversation with a brief discussion of the novelization of his story and an essay written about the importance of his Afro-Latinidad. Next, we'll move on to the animated film featuring Miles Morales into the Spider-Verse, which was released in 2018. Here, we will consider the changes made to his story from the comic books and the ways in which the creator pushed boundaries in the world of animation. We'll wrap up the main segment of our episode with a brief chat about the 2020 video game Miles Morales Spider-Man and the art of the narrative in video games in general. As usual, we will close out with a few comic book and graphic novel recommendations as well as a handful of additional Latinx superheroes worth checking out. All right, so let's start out with a little bit on Latinx representation in comics. You know, Latino comic book characters, specifically those in mainstream comics, have actually been around since the 1940s. But how those characters were represented was not always much beyond a stereotype. After observing these stereotypical portrayals of uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, comic book character researcher J.A. Brown conducted a series of interviews with young comic book fans. They found that readers changed their perspective on people of color depending on how they were portrayed in comic books. So the more positive the representation, the higher value was assigned to these people in real life and vice versa. We also want to recognize that BIPOC comic book characters in general tend to be underrepresented and do not carry as many primary storylines. There is an overrepresentation of white men in comic books. This suggests that the comic book industry is trying to appeal to the already established target audience of white men. Yeah, and themes of racism and sexism in comics may prevent women and BIPOC readers from engaging with many comic book series because readers don't want to see themselves represented via these negative tropes. Again, racism in the media can negatively affect members of racial minority groups who are exposed to it, and it can promote stereotypes, some of which can lead to dangerous assumptions. The same applies to ethnic and cultural characters portrayed using stereotypes. Yeah, the self-esteem of readers, but young readers in particular, can suffer when they see characters like them depicted through negative stereotypes. Remember, the media is a powerful tool that can be used to shape our attitudes towards people, and comic books are no exception. 
The idea that comics are light and frivolous disregards the countless weighty social critiques that often appear in this medium. They are frequently subversive and address issues that we don't always see portrayed in the media. The lack of diversity in comics over the years is astounding. While there are a number of BIPOC characters and even a handful of Afro-Latinx characters that we'll mention a few of them in a moment, it is largely recognized that there is an overwhelming lack of representation of racial and ethnic minority characters in mainstream comics. And mainstream media, um, we can say. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So let's take a look at a handful of Afro-Latinx characters that do exist in mainstream comics. Let us know how many you are familiar with already. So first up is White Tiger, Hector Ayala. He was created by Bill Montlow and George Perez for Marvel Comics, uh, and he made his first appearance in 1975 in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu number 19, if you want to check it out. He was born in San Juan and moved to New York for college. He transformed into White Tiger after putting on the three tiger amulets he found. And in later years, he was put on trial for murder. He was defended by Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, for Marvel fans out there, but was found guilty. So I won't get into it here, but his ending was pretty tragic. But he's really one of the first fully flushed out uh, Afro-Latinx characters that we see in either Marvel or DC. Then we have Sunspot, Roberto da Costa, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod for Marvel Comics. Afro-Brazilian Sunspot made his first appearance in 1982. His powers are activated when he falls victim to a racist attack during a football match. He was a member of the New Mutants and is later recruited into the Global Avengers Initiative. Next up we have Flashback. Dominican-born Flashback first appeared in Blood Syndicate No. 1 in 1993. She was created by Dwayne McDuffie, Ivan Velez Jr., and Dennis Cowan for Milestone Comics. She and her brother Fade, along with others, formed the Blood Syndicate. She had the ability to travel back in time and was often used to prevent others from dying by using her power. But she retained the memories of the deaths that happened even after she went back and changed things. So, yikes. <laughs> White Tiger comes back, and now it's Ava Ayala. Ava became White Tiger after her niece, Angela del Toro, retired. Angela took up the mantle after he uh, Hector's death. Uh, Hector, or Hector, was Ava's uh, older brother. Ava joined the Avengers Academy, where she clashed with reptiles, another Latinx superhero regarding Latinx culture. She later joined the Mighty Avengers. Yeah, I'm I'm quite partial to reptile. I mean, I've I haven't read that one where they clash, but I, I like the reptile comics. Next up is Power Man, Victor Alvarez, created for Marvel Comics by Fred Van Lente and Mahmoud A. Azrar. Power Man first appeared in 2010. Victor Alvarez was the son of the Puerto Rican-born Afro-Latinx supervillain Shades from Luke Cage although not portrayed as Afro-Latinx in the television show. Uh, he has superhuman strength and has been a member of the Mighty Avengers and the U.S. Avengers. Next, we have Fade, Carlos Quinones, created by Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cohen for Milestone Comics again. He also first appeared in Blood Syndicate number one, along with his sister Flashback. Unlike Estraño, the first queer Latinx superhero, Fate is not written as a stereotype. He knew he was gay from a young age and later in his life lost the man he loved. He was also blackmailed because of his sexuality by his teammate Masquerade. While readers might have known his uh, sexuality, it is unclear if he is still closeted within the comics themselves. 
Next up is Gimmick, Carmen Maria Cruz, who was created for Marvel Comics by Vita Ayala and Bernard Chang. And Vita Ayala is one of my one of my favorite writers. Gimmick first appeared in Children of the Atom Volume 1 in 2021. She's a Puerto Rican lesbian high school student and a member of the mutant-obsessed teens who have used technology to mimic the powers of the X-Men. It's later discovered that she is a true mutant. I'm going to continue with Angel Salvadore or Angel Salvadore, created by Grant Morrison on Ethan Van Sieber. Angel first appeared in New X-Men number uh, 118 in tw uh, 2001. She grew up in an abusive home and was kicked out when her powers manifested. Uh, she was almost dissected by the U-Men for her mutant organs, but was saved by Wolverine and brought back to the Savior Institute. There are other characters that we could mention, and if you have a favorite that we left off the list, be sure and let us know. Uh, but also stick around for our recommendations at the end of the episode, where we'll bring up a few more names. It is interesting also how like uh, many of the ideas of, of being mutant like coincide with the ideas on Latinidad, right? Mm. And, like to be like in spaces of uh, marginalization yes. and spaces of uh, being in between. Uh, uh, the, in between ontologies, identities, uh, uh, possibilities, futures, etc., etc. So I, I, it is interesting to think about the, this idea of being mutant with being othered, uh, uh, other, <laughs> and being and thus being uh, Latin American in the U.S. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Miles Morales himself. Miles was first introduced in August 2011 in Marvel's Ultimate Fallout number four, following the death of Peter Parker. He's appeared in the Disney animated series Ultimate Spider-Man and has been introduced as a member of the all-new, all-different Avengers. He has also his own video game, Miles Morales' Spider-Man, but is probably best known from the 2018 Academy Award winning animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The film won for Best Animated Feature that year. There has been social media campaigns to have him appear in a live-action MCU film as well. Yes, I'll sign that petition. <laughs> the character of Miles Morales was created, as we said, in 2011, which was just over a decade ago, by Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pichelli. Reaction to the character varied, but Stan Lee, creator of the original Spider-Man comics, approved. So I think that's a big part of what counts in his character. However, it does raise a questions about the backlash from white fans when comic book companies diversified their narratives and characters. Absolutely. In the comics, Miles is a 13-year-old bicultural teenager from Brooklyn. His father is African-American and his mother is Puerto Rican. His powers come from being bitten by a genetically engineered spider and are similar to those acquired by the original Spider-Man, Peter Parker, except that he can also basically turn invisible and he has a, a move called the Venom Strike. So obviously it's, it's a bit of an upgrade. Fun fact, in the movie, they show him being bitten by spider number 42, which is Jackie Robinson. Baseball number. He's the first Afro-Latinx Spider-Man, but the second Latinx Spider-Man with the first being Miguel O'Hara, who is of half-Mexican descent in the 1990s. As with most superheroes who are spurred on by the loss of a loved one, Miles also loses a family member. Although interestingly, depending on the medium, it's a different person. His mom is killed in the comics, his uncle dies in the animated film, and he loses his father in the video game. 
The idea to create a black Spider-Man was first discussed in 2008, just prior to the election of Barack Obama. These ideas were initially abandoned because the character was not yet developed. But in 2011, when Marvel decided to kill off uh, Peter Parker in the Ultimate Marvel Universe, Miles Morales was created. Fun fact, Morales' character development was heavily influenced by Donald Glover's character from the show Community, Troy Barnes. In the second season of the show, Glover appears wearing Spider-Man pajamas. Creator Brian Michael Bendis loved the look, and the rest is history. If the focus of this episode is the art of Miles Morales, then we have to speak about something that academic Frederick Luis Aldama refers to as geometrizing the narrative. Now, geometrizing the narrative refers to the visual aspects of comics, the dimensionality of the art, that is, the use of form, space, color, line, and shape to tell a story. Aldama calls this the skillful and willful visualizing of character, theme, and plot that guides our gap-filling processes and shapes our experiences of a given comic book. In other words, what we see on the page tells us a lot about the character, their story, and their world, even before we read a single word. In the context of Latinx comics, this will include the use of historical, cultural, and even linguistic context to suggest realism and an awareness of the Latinx experience in the U.S. The other element that's crucial to comics is storyfying, and this is a counterpart to geometrizing. If the first is about the visual, the second is about the narrative. Storyfying in the context of Latinx comics would include language usage, English, Spanish, Spanglish, Portuguese, etc. Formal language versus slang, spoken words and thoughts, and more. And both of these things are crucial and they complement one another. And if they don't, the story likely won't resonate with readers as well. When it comes to Spider-Man and the visual look for Miles, artist Sara Pichelli took special care to geometrize his personality, his background, and his distinctive traits such as clothing, body language, and facial expressions. She created his costume to be mostly black with red webbing and a red spider logo. This is in contrast to Peter Parker's red suit with blue webbing. She also utilized a screen tone technique with her illustration to give a more pop vibe to the series. When it comes to a storyfying Miles, his Latinidad is a little less prominent, at least in early issues. The biggest indicator that he is Latino is his last name, Morales. There is no use of Spanish or Spanglish even when his mother is around. While speaking Spanish is not required to represent Latinidad, of course, the story and the images together seem to downplay or perhaps even erase his Latinidad. Yeah, in a 2016 issue of Spider-Man, it was uh, issue number two, the final page gives us our first glimpse in some, into some sort of Spanglish, and this comes from Miles' grandmother. I, I find it interesting here in the comic that they don't even refer to her as his abuela, which would be something that could easily storyfy his Latinidad. And it's very common within uh, Latinx literature. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 using the word abuelo, abuela in the, in the narratives. Yeah. Exactly. Something that simple, right? But then she says like her line, it, and I remember reading it and feeling like it just didn't hit right, and I couldn't put my finger on why. Uh, but she says, we're going to get your life straight, Mr. Morales. Face it, Tigre. You're about to get a big old kick in the culo. It, it, it just sounds wrong. Like, if 
it gives the impression that the writer was not aware of how Spanglish would naturally flow or how a Puerto Rican abuela or even even a young one, as she's depicted here, would utilize that blend of Spanish and English. It's just like natural points where it fits yeah, it's also the like the, the issue with uh, many times the issue with Latinidad that everybody's put on the same uh, umbrella, right? And the, uh, for example, when you use a word like tigre, that is a, a very Dominican uh, word, right? So in a way, uh, you were talking about, uh, uh, we were talking about uh, creating the story by signaling to these cultural elements. And tigre is a, a cultural element that definitely signals towards Dominicanidad. Mm. I wasn't even aware of that. So that adds another layer to how it just doesn't quite resonate, you know. And this, again, this brings me to the question of the background of the creators and their understanding of linguistic and cultural background of the characters they're writing. I mean, these are not Latino creators, right? That is something that I have noticed that happens also like in general in visual media, right? Also like films on TV, mostly uh, the people who are writing Latinx centric films or TV shows are uh, for the most part are usually do not belong or are are not of uh, Latin American descent in any way. And that uh, that is an issue, right? So yeah. it's important. That, and that is an issue that takes us into the discussion about representation. Yes, it is important to see ourselves in the screens, but also we need people behind the camera. We need yes. people in production. We need people in the writing groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why I think for me, the, the Latinx comic characters that resonate with me the most are like America Chavez and La Borinquena and uh, Reptile. They're all written by Latinx writers. And so those people, like, they know the story. They live the story. This is their experience to a certain extent. Obviously, they're not superheroes with superpowers, but their their way of writing it is much more lived. Yeah, and also, like, for example, taking, uh, taking into consideration the work of uh, that that we can identify in, for example, in La, in La Borinquena, we see also like uh, the interest in portraying stories from the homelands as well, mm-hmm. not only from uh, the diaspora. Yes. So let's talk about a little bit about uh, Miles' uh, visible blackness. Yeah, we see that at times it seems to overshadow his Latinidad, something that doesn't need to happen. Mm-hmm. A great example of this is when he fights his demon-like creature in Spider-Man Miles Morales Volume 1, and his suit gets a tear in it. A fangirl posts about this on her social media. In her blog, she's excited that, as she puts it, the new Spider-Man is brown. He's a kid of color. This is huge, with three exclamation points. Uh She tries to guess whether he's African-American, Indian, or... Latino, Hispanic. She uses probably she uses right. She, she uses the word Hispanic. Hispanic yeah. yeah, but then, uh, but then she goes on to refer him as Black Spider-Man, erasing his Latinidad. Although I have to say that uh, many Afro-Latinos also like preferred the the term Black over Afro-Latino. Mm. All right. Miles is bothered by this qualifier, though, much like the Falcon. If anyone has seen the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series on Disney Plus, uh, when someone refers to him as Black Falcon, it's like, why do I need this qualifier? Right. And uh, Miles comments here that he is also half Hispanic, which we'll touch on that phrase a little bit later as well. But this shows that representing his Afro-Latinidad or both his blackness and his Latinidad are important to him. 
His blackness is a point of celebration for many people, but it seems to come at the cost of erasing his Latinidad, at least up to this point in the comic. Right. In the 2022 issue of Marvel Voices Comunidades Volume 1, there are a couple of comics featuring Miles where he is also celebrating his Latinidad. One in which they go to a rally in support of immigrants, and another in which they attend the Puerto Rican Day Parade. So it appears as though the creators heard the cries for better Latinx representation and have responded by writing it into his story. It's also that uh, tell us something about the medium that allows to like increase, yeah, or to add layers to the representation, to early representation, and expand the way you think about the characters, the way the the elements that you want to see included in the comics, etc. Mm-hmm. So moving on from the comic book, there's also been novelizations of Miles Morales as a character. So let's talk about one of those. Uh, written by the prolific and award-winning African-American author Jason Reynolds, the novel's Miles Morales Spider-Man from 2017 tells the story of how Miles deals with a major existential crisis that is affecting every aspect of his life as a teen and as a superhero. Above all, we discovered that the novel is a social study of urban black masculinity in the U.S. Uh-huh. Opposite to the example previously stated, Reynolds does not present Miles' Afro-Boricua identity as something separate or minor in comparison to his Afro-American experience. Both complement and are tied to each other. Reynolds wants to indicate into the psychological experience of an Afro-diasporic character with many layers among them his Puerto Ricanidad. Mm -hmm. The young adult text equally explores his maternal side and Puerto Rican cultural background, mostly through language, food, and music. There's a big shout out to the Fania All-Stars. Yeah, that made me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> There's dialogue in Spanish and Spanglish, and that's common throughout the novel. And it's used in linguistically responsible and rigorous ways, um, which is an exception in mainstream media. And even as we just talked about in the comics, when it didn't work, yeah. here it works. With deep investment, the novel wants to describe the afterlives of slavery in the United States using Miles as a case study. Once of Miles' teacher, Mr. Chamberlain, lectures on the historical benefits of slavery and celebrate the side of the Confederacy. Oof. He's also an apologist of the prison industrial complex and sees it positively as a system that has allowed to sustain the racial hierarchy of the U.S. up to the present. Yikes. <laughs> Miles' spidey sense is in crisis because of this teacher and the racist organization Chamberlain belongs to. When Miles or the other students reject these lessons, they're punished and humiliated. An important question in the novel is what tools black students have to confront racist lessons that dehumanize them and their ancestors. Some of the effects depicted within the novel that could be described as the afterlives of slavery are housing segregation and houselessness, general economic precarity, lack of educational and job opportunities, neglect and shame within schools, the criminalization of black youth, a biased judicial and correctional system, and the mistreatment of black and Latino men in prison. Reynolds illustrates how the school-to-prison pipeline works for black men beyond their cultural and linguistic background. Love this for a like a, a young adult novelization of this character. It covers so much and and addresses so many of these real life issues. Yeah, I feel like probably from all the sources, this is the more profound of them all, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of looking at the sociological aspect of the character. Right. 
However, the Miles Morales Spider-Man novelization is not a pessimistic tale, right? You mention all of these sort of dark themes, but it's not pessimistic. Reynolds is also interested in portraying the impact of black culture in Brooklyn. The author moves Miles through scenes in basketball courts, in spoken word open mics, in subway trains along breakdancers, barbershops, spade games, costume parties, family dinners, video game sessions, among other happenings that allow the reader to perceive and connect with the vibrancy of Black and Afro-Latinx culture in the city. Reynolds is very conscious of the stereotypical labels imposed on Black men. He challenges them by going against these scripts. He elaborates a complex multicultural character that doesn't fit into mainstream pathological discourses on Blackness or masculinist myth. And this brings us into uh, an essay that was written about Miles Morales. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, in the recently published anthology of Latinx uh, personal essays, Wild Tongues Can Be Tame, living queer Afro-Dominican poet Julian Randall, the living is something that he wants to like to highlight there, has an essay entitled Hashtag Julian for Spider-Man. In it, Randall uses Miles Morales' story, mostly taken from the animated film and the concept of the multiverse, to examine their Dominican, diasporic, and Afro-Latinx identities. Randall finds constant parallelism between their life and upbringing and Miles's. To start, they both have an African-American father and an Afro-Caribbean mother. Randall identifies different theories regarding Miles's last name, Morales. They say that the theory that resonates best with them is the need to hide the criminal reputation associated with Davis, Miles's dad and uncle's last name. And Jason Reynolds explains this theory in his novel as well, so there's a connection there. Morales also signifies an unconditional and somewhat innocent maternal love. Let's remember that his mother, Rio Morales, doesn't know that Miles is a Spider-Man. A lot of Miles Morales' moral reflection is how to overcome cycles of marginalization and violence and lead a positive life helping his community. Thus, Morales seems like a better choice. Similarly, Randall says that he was born into a mask. They think of mask as a burden, but at times as a superpower. They highlight a negotiation between invisibility and bold visibility via a force code switching. Afro-Latin Americans in the U.S. tend to experience the dilemma of assimilation versus cultural retention, especially when they're in predominantly white spaces, as Randall, who went to a white school. Said otherwise, they're addressing the need to hide your cultural and linguistic background to fit into and even survive in the mainstream society or within dominant notions of blackness. And I want to bring a quote from the essay that says... At the mostly white school he sends me to, I do what children do. I mimic. I tell the story of the first Spider-Man and I am met mostly with confusion. Spider-Man is white. Everybody knows that. I grow quieter the older my small body becomes. I'm invisible in stretches I can never predict. I try to turn them to my advantage anyway because this is what I know of power. Better to be inside of it than against it. I negotiate and I trick and I pretend like my father, like Anansi, that we're going to be talking about very soon. I learn to code switch, not always when I want to, but as some strange compromise between fight and flight. 
I brought that quote uh, because, right, it is in the context of talking about the uh, legacy of uh, Anansi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ancestral legacy of Anansi. Randall repeats in the essay that for them, Spider-Man was always black, yeah. right? Uh, beyond Miles Morales. Yeah, they trace the character's origin not to Peter Parker, the white theme from Queens, but to Anansi the Spider, a trickster character that belongs to the oral tradition of the Ashanti people in Africa. As the quote underscores, Randall thinks that to be safe, they needed to trick people just like Anansi by erasing parts of their identity. A connection between the novel and the essay is that both Julian and Miles suffer anti-black racism from one of their teachers. In Randall's case, the history teacher made them perform a pro-slavery advocate in a role-play class debate. They say that after this experience, they decided to stop trying to succeed in school. If trying landed me arguing for my own destruction, if great expectations led me to such loneliness, then I wanted to be invisible for good. And this is like Miles failing his test in the movie. He gets a zero out of a hundred. And the only way you can get a zero out of a hundred, the teacher says, is if you know how to do everything right. Yeah. And Julian says uh, that when uh, they were asked to perform as a pro-slavery, something similar happened. Randall also says that like Miles in middle school, they felt that they were somewhere they didn't belong. Randall interpolates this idea to the U.S., Quote, America taught us we were invisible and the only way for the invisible to punish those who refuse to see us is to first punish ourselves. Randall presents that the experience of being an outcast continued even when they were in Latinx spaces. However, they say that the term Afro-Latinx helped them affirm their existence and understand that, quote, there are as many ways to be Latinx as there are Latinx people. That this is what it can mean when it is said that anyone can wear the mask. Randall says that Miles Morales gave them strength and validation as an Afro-Latinx person, not only because of the importance of representation in media, but also because Miles embodies someone who is thought that he, uh, that he is dangerous and shameful. However, he engages in a leap of faith and becomes Spider-Man by allowing himself to float and swing all over the city, embracing his powers. In the case of Randall, it will be embracing his Afro-Latinidad. Moving on to, to the Miles Morales film, we have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which was released in 2018. This animated film features the Afro-Latino middle school student Miles Morales as the new Spider-Man. The film was released the same year as the Black Panther movie, so it was kind of building off of that uh, black superhero representation. Much of the plot of the film is similar to the early Miles comic book storyline, but one thing that stood out was the lack of relationship with Genki. We do meet Miles' uh, roommate, but we never get his name, nor does he speak. Comic book readers might connect him with Genki based on how he's drawn, but otherwise we have nothing to go off of regarding the character that is supposed to be Miles' best friend. Yeah. What makes Into the Spider-Verse special is the focus on Afro-Latinidad. It wasn't just that Miles was an Afro-Latino, but that it was highlighted as part of the film, at least more so than in the original comics. The film depicts blackness and Latinidad not as separate, but as coexisting and intersecting, just like the novel. Afro-Latinidad is shown not as some abstract concept, but as a lived identity as shown through Miles' experiences. Now, to be fair, the film does not necessarily unpack Miles' Afro-Latino identity, but the implicit references are much more apparent. 
from eating arroz con gandules on his way out the door, on his way to school, to his interactions with neighbors on the street. And when he speaks Spanish with those around him, the film does not translate what's being said, uh, at least on my DVD rewatch. I mean, if I, you saw it in the theaters, I don't know if it had <laughs> if it had subtitles, but... Mouse's blackness and Latinidad coexist smoothly in the film. If we go back to Aldama's geometrizing and storifying of Latino characters, we can apply this to Miles and his Afro-Latinx representation in the film. He is visibly black, his hairstyle and texture reflects his African ancestry, and he speaks Spanish with his mother and people in the neighborhood. His Afro-Latino identity is never challenged in the film. It's not a point of discussion. Now, this may have been an active choice on the part of the film creators to prioritize Miles' role as a superhero. And while it could have been an oversight, it was likely intentional, as towards the end of the film, we get Miles telling the audience, I never thought that I would be able to do any of this stuff, but I can. Anyone can wear the mask. You could wear the mask. A way to make Spider-Man more inclusive. And that is precisely what Julian uh, repeats in the essay as well. Mm-hmm. So I think this is refreshing to have a story that allows him to live within his Afro-Latinx identity without centering traumas associated with that as part of his story. The plot is not centered around his identity as an Afro-Latino. And because this is a superhero story set in a fictional world, it doesn't need to be. Just as importantly, while it may not be the center point for the plot, it is never erased. However, there are others, such as Serapia Keen, a writer for the Black Latinx Studies blog, who question whether it is disingenuous to the lived experiences of Afro-Latinx people to not depict the reality of the challenges that they face in the real world today. Yeah, valid criticism. And that is that is something that, for example, the novel does address, mm -hmm. right? And he's really interested, uh, Reynolds is really interested in, in portraying those aspects. And perhaps they're more central than, uh, than the superhero plot. So let's talk a little bit about the animation of this film, right? Or again, going back to what Aldama referred to it as the geometrizing and storifying of the film. Into the Spider-Verse was the first ever animated Spider-Man feature film. It was a chance to do something new and that's exactly what they did. The look of the film was heavily inspired by the look of comic books. Design and styles were prioritized over accuracy of realism and the artists involved were encouraged to experiment with new ideas and animation styles. Yeah, new techniques were developed that hadn't been used in animated features previously. And I, I recall seeing it and thinking very specifically that I had never seen anything like it. I just, I walked out of the theater wowed. Uh, the creators of the film carefully considered and even reconsidered what it meant to make an animated film that maintained the comic book spirit. Yet at the same time, there was active consideration into balancing the design with the emotional appeal of the story. And this is not always an easy thing to accomplish with animation, but I think they really managed to do it well here. The animation frame rate was also adjusted for parts of this film, which gave it its own unique movement. While traditional CG animation has 24 images for every second of film into the Spider-Verse, frequently use only 12 images for every second of film. This allowed each frame to appear at its own image, just like a panel in a comic book, and added on a specific feel to action scenes that wouldn't have otherwise been attained. This, combined with frames modulation, added a slick version of pop art to the images. And as a bonus, animation allowed for certain comic book poses that could not be recreated in real life because, well, 
physics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even Tom Holland can't do those moves, right? <laughs> the film also incorporated the use of half toning and line hatching similar to what we saw in the comic book. The use of graphic shapes, bold colors, strong composition, and simplified design also added to the unique and stylized look of the film. There were even moments where, as a viewer, we almost asked ourselves if the film was meant to require 3D glasses. Yeah, I love those moments, too, because you're like, whoa, is this? Yeah, this is very intentional. Some scenes that really stand out in terms of the geometrizing and storyfying of the film include the scene where Miles is bitten by the spider. Uh, you really get a sense of the comic book here. There are even moments that are almost uh, like freeze frame within the comic book borders between the different shots. The words that appear as comic book blocks after he gets bitten show a real transition in style as well. Here's Miles' thoughts becomes loud and that is represented by words on the screen. Sometimes they are shown as thought bubbles, but other times there are onomatopoeic words based on the sounds being made in the scene. We also have these transitional moments where we see covers of different Spider People comic books. These are accompanied by changes in the narrator for that particular act of the film. And speaking of the comic books, the fact that Miles reads Spider-Man comic books is a great meta moment in the, the film as well. Another example is the ways in which the film demonstrates how the different Spider characters recognize one another. It's the Spidey sense visually portrayed. Yeah, and um, you had actually brought up a good point when we were speaking before the recording about these meta-narratives with these other Spider people and how that sort of in a sense, almost took away from Miles as the protagonist. I mean, he's still the protagonist, but it it sort of recentered the narrative around these other characters at different points in the in the film. Yeah, I was thinking like, although it is fascinating the whole meta construction of the film. Yeah, I was asking myself to what extent, yeah, having all these other characters kind of like distort or maybe like take. Uh, a, a little bit uh, um. <laughs> yeah it, it almost it almost makes it like palatable for white audiences to uh, have a black and Latinx Spider-Man like it's okay don't worry there's still a Peter Parker and there's still like the pig spider and the it, it's like it's okay people who are worried about black Spider-Man like no, get the over other, it. The other white Spider-Man are still here, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like this idea that he can exist as long as we, uh, as he is with other uh, Spider-Man, especially the white Spider-Mans. Right? Yeah, and and that's a an issue that comes up in the video game. But I do think in the comic series, as the comics progress, he is more on his own. Um, yeah, I will make a call to to have a, a, a Miles Morales animated film just with him. <laughs> yeah, or even better, a live action one. Yeah, with or both. <laughs> uh, why not both? <laughs> one more moment that I wanted to mention in terms of geometrizing and storyfying is the visual representation of the different dimensions colliding with one another and the reactions of the characters who belong in a different dimension. Like they're created in a way that you can understand how they relate to one another without requiring someone to narrate that connection. Like when the universe is collapsing on itself, mm -hmm. you see these specific colors and specific flashes. And when the, the spider characters glitch, mm -hmm. basically you see mm -hmm. that same thing recreated. Yeah, they represent all that visually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without the needs of, of, of heavy theory. 
right? Uh, and this is something that is going to continue. Miles' uh, film story is not over. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse will be released in two parts, with, uh, uh, with the first part set to release in this year, in October 2022. So yes. that's coming up. And uh, He will still be in the Spider-Verse, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, let's see. Like, yeah, let's see if eventually we have a whole Miles Morales uh, storyline yeah, without all the other possible Spider-Man. <laughs> Um, finally, we want to wrap up the main segment here talking about the Miles Morales Spider-Man video game. So I was just curious, Rojo, are you a, are you a video game person or have you ever been? Yeah, when I when I was a, a little boy, I used to be. I was a, a Sega boy. <laughs> <laughs> I used to play like uh, Sonic the Hedgehog and Shinobi. And, and and also I used to play like a Nintendo in friends' houses. Uh, but not anymore. I have to say that I'm, I'm not a, a gamer yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not really either. But, you know, I have a few that I like to play. I like to play Animal Crossing, Street Fighter. And uh, there's a PS5 game called Raymond Legends that I enjoy. But uh, when I said I was talking about this episode with my husband and I was like, I want to talk about the art of the video game in this episode, he decided that he would download the game because he really enjoys video games in his free time. And the game looks awesome. I just don't think I have the patience to go through and play it, I like watching how detailed it is. But uh, th this video game came out in 2020 and it was a follow-up to the 2018 game Spider-Man, which features Peter Parker... But I want to point out, does not have his name in the title. You notice, again, we have to have this qualifier. It's Miles Morales Spider-Man, and it's Spider-Man. If it's just Spider-Man, then it's assumed it's Peter Parker. And that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, so this video game is a pretty realistic-looking game. That is, the animation style is very different from that of the Spider-Verse film. Mm-hmm. The storyline that uh, accompanies the game is fully flushed out and the voice actors add a level of complexity to the story being told within the game world. Although, again, just like in the animated film, uh, and I don't think we mentioned this before, but the actors who uh, voice Miles are African-American and not Af Afro-Latinx. Yeah, in the film is uh, Shamik Moore, yes. right? That, uh, it's interesting because Shamik Moore had been involved in projects that are uh, about yeah, the intersections between uh, Latino, Boricuas, and, yeah, and Afri African-Americans. He's in the Get Down. The Get Down, yeah. yeah and uh, he's also in the Wu-Tang Clan series yeah, that was uh, recently release and there's like some not a lot but there's like some afro-latino characters there as well mm -hmm. so it's interesting how he has built a career out of those connections yeah there are certain elements that are brought into the game world returning to the topic of the uh, of video games that we saw in the comics and the film but there are also some narrative differences Peter Parker is alive, but on vacation, Miles' mother is still alive, and his father and abuela are dead, and they have moved to Harlem, which I believe happens in later comics. Yeah, you know, he starts out as Brooklyn's Spider-Man, right? Because we know Peter Parker is from Queens, Miles is from Brooklyn, but he does later move to Harlem. I wonder if uh, that decision is also like because like Latinidad in New York is mostly associated with uh, is Harlem, El Barrio, and maybe the Bronx more than with Brooklyn. 
That wouldn't surprise me. And in the video game world, all of the events seem to take place within Manhattan as well. Like in terms of the map of the game, it seems to be Manhattan based. So it's also probably ease of storytelling. But I do think that happens in the comics as well, that they moved to Harlem at one point. Uh, the video game includes Genki, Miles' best friend, and um, we, we saw him in the comics, but uh, he has a pretty important role in the video game, helping Miles along the way. He knows Miles' secret before his mother does, and he's sort of that tech guy that, like, it seems all comic stories require. You have, like, your superhero, and then you have the the sidekick tech guy who can, like, fix everything. <laughs> yeah, the same happens in the novel. He's, uh, like, a, a grounding figure for Miles, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's a really good uh, friend, but uh, a lot of the debates on on his uh, existential crisis happen in conversation with Genki. So he's a very, like, central character in the novel as well. And I also think, I'm, I'm not sure on this one, but um, the, the character of Ned in the most recent... Spider-Man live-action films, I think he is based off of Genki. Like, his character creation is is very similar to what I imagine Genki's would be. There are numerous in-game elements that demonstrate Miles' Latinx background, including appearances of the Puerto Rican flag and Latino art in his home, the celebration of Noche Buena, and even the guayaba sauce instead of the more Americanized cranberry sauce uh, when they're having his dinner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that there's a moment where Genki like spills it. He's like, oh no, the guava sauce. And I'm just like, I appreciate that moment. Like just that little detail. Right? Yeah, in the novel, Genki is a fan of uh, Mouse's mother uh, 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 cuisine, <laughs> <laughs> Boricua cuisine. It's really, it's really cool too. There's, there's also a more natural Spanish integrated into the game story as well. Unlike the comic where the Spanish was awkward and unnatural, Miles's use of Spanglish in the video game is much more linguistically logical. His mom even speaks straight up Spanish to him at times. Honestly, if you're not familiar with this style of video game that is intercut with a narrative, you could almost see the game as more of an interactive film. It's a movie with game elements sprinkled throughout. And I, in fact, I went online and watched like a three hour video over the course of a few days that was all the cutscenes from this from this game, like with all the game almost taken out and just the the film aspect of it. That is that's interesting to think about a video game as a film. Mm hmm. While not every element is true to New York City, it is relatively accurate in terms of neighborhoods and rivers and bridges. There is Harlem street art that fits the bite of the neighborhood as well. When we talked about artistic representation in media, this is what we're talking about, true to story, authenticity, not erasing Miles' blackness or his Latinidad and showing the ways in which they intersect with one another. All of this in a video game is pretty impressive. Yeah, it really is. One of my favorite lines from the game comes towards the end when a news reporter asks if people saw the new Spider-Man and is trying to figure out who he is. And the response comes from a Harlem resident who replies, that guy, he's our Spider-Man. So is he talking about Harlem Spider-Man? or Spider-Man for the BIPOC community, or even something as specific as an Afro-Latino Spider-Man. Like, or we don't Afro know. Afro-Boricua Spider-Man, Afro-Boricua, <laughs> yeah, even more specific, exactly. Yeah. 
While we're not given a specific answer to this, it presents the importance of having racial and ethnic representation within media and society at large. We're given a fully fleshed out Afro-Latinx superhero who comic book readers, film viewers, and video game players of color can connect with. All right, so we'll add some recommendations here. Uh, first one up I have is Manana, Latinx comics from the 25th century. And that is not a mistake, 25th century. It's very futuristic. It's a sci-fi comics anthology set throughout Latin America in the 2490s. I guess that's how you would say that. <laughs> the, yeah, 2490s. It's a thousand years after the imperialist Europeans arrived on the continent. Manana presents readers with a radical array of futures, arranging from post-apocalypse to liberationist utopia to slice-of-life magical realism. The book's about 300 pages long with a black-and-white interior and features 27 young adult stories by Latine creators throughout the U.S. and Latin America. The collection features the work of 50 Latine and Latin American creators representing Cuba, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, El Salvador, Argentina, Colombia, Honduras, and Peru. Initially funded by a Kickstarter campaign, it is now available from PNM Press in both digital and hardcover versions and in both English and Spanish. So my recommendation is going to be a story from the 1970s. Get a brother from Warrior to Peacemaker. This is an impactful counter history of the gang life in the Bronx during the 1970s. As I was telling you, this graphic novel written by Julian Boloff and illustrated by Claudia Allerin tells the true story of Benji Melendez, a Bronx legend who founded at the end of the 1960s the Ghetto Brothers Gang. The Ghetto Brothers transitioned from turf warriors in the South Bronx to peace negotiators, cultural promoters, and pro-Puerto Rican independence activists. Their movement toward peace and community empowerment happened during a turbulent time of violent inner conflicts in the Bronx, many of them racially motivated. They were inspired by the work of the radical organization, the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. And just like this political organization, the Ghetto Brothers identified the reality of systemic racism, colonialism and governmental disinvestment. As a response, they created alliances and coalitions between African Americans, Puerto Ricans, Jews and Afro Caribbean and Latin American people. My second recommendation is something that I brought up very briefly earlier on. Uh, it's a comic issue called Marvel Voices, Comunidades Number One. And this came out last October. Marvel released the new issue of their Marvel Voices series. And this series highlights the cultural richness of Marvel comics. The series includes issues on indigenous Marvel heroes, Asian Marvel heroes, black and African American heroes, LGBTQIA plus heroes, and more. Comunidades is the Latinx Marvel Heroes collection and features 16 different stories featuring a number of Marvel characters. I'm not sure if the print copy is still available in stores because it was an issue and not a book, uh, but you can get the digital copy of the comic from the Marvel website. My last recommendation today is Labor in Kenya. This is an original Afro-Indigenous Boricua character and superhero story created and written by graphic novelist Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. Her powers are drawn from Afro-Taino history and spiritual conceptions found in Puerto Rico. 
Marisol Rios de la Luz is a Columbia University Earth and Environmental Sciences undergraduate student. She takes a semester of study abroad in collaboration with the University of Puerto Rico. There she explores the capes of Puerto Rico and finds five similar sized crystals that connect her to Atabex, the Taino mother goddess, and her son, Yukahu, a spirit of the sea and mountains, and Huracan, a spirit of the hurricanes. They give Marisol superhuman strength, the power of flight, and control of the storms. La Borinqueña is a story about circular migration, ecological consciousness, Boricua ecologies, and community aid. So all fantastic recommendations here. Uh, but if you're someone who just wants to read more Latinx superhero stories, it's a few characters I'd recommend checking out. America Chavez. She doesn't have an alter ego name. She's just America Chavez. Humberto Lopez, a.k.a. Reptile. Jaime Reyes, a.k.a. Blue Beetle. Jessica Cruz, a.k.a. Green Lantern. Francisco Cisco Ramon, a.k.a. Vibe. Anya Corazon, a.k.a. Spider Girl, Lorena Marquez, a.k.a. Aqua Girl, and as we talked about earlier on, Hector Ayala and later Eva Ayala, a.k.a. White Tiger. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we sign off, we want to share some feedback comments we got from listeners on our season one episodes. Both of these comments come from listeners of the fourth episode of season one, Latinas and Art, Creative Nonfiction with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. So first up from Valerie. Valerie writes, Carla Cornejo Villavicencio says that once you make it out, you want to help others do the same. I think that this is very true when it comes to the Latino community. In our culture, we all want to help each other out and become successful together. However, I've seen this fail too many times. My parents always try to help out their family back home, and they do things like send them money, lend them money, help them start small businesses, etc. Unfortunately, my parents have been taken advantage of by people they call family. For this reason, I'd say that sometimes helping others out isn't for the best, and that sometimes you have to just let them figure it out for themselves. It's interesting uh, take on that, right? Because... I think a lot of what Cornejo Vicencio was talking about was within the community here in the U.S. And this is more about like sending money back. And, you know, yeah, people yeah, are taken it, advantage gets, of. Yeah, she gets into the topic of remesas, right? Or sending money, sending uh, aid, yeah, consumer goods yeah, to the homelands. That is a very important aspect or that is central yeah, to the relationships between uh, homelands and diaspora in the United States. And of course, like there will be like different opinions on that, right? Yeah. And if, depending on the f different like family situation, we're going to like see different uh, tensions that arise because of the amount of aid that is received. Yeah, the, the, the responsibilities that people thing they should assume right mm -hmm. when in the diaspora etc etc so this is a very complex uh topic that of course like every family might have a a, a a say or an opinion about it yeah but in the case of just like to clarify in the case of Carla Corneo Villavicencio I feel what she was mentioning is that the idea that she had when writing the book about sharing the these stories right, right. and presenting these stories in her book book for her was vital, especially during the recent years of extreme racism, official racism coming from the Congress, from the president as well, right? And how she wanted to 
create a, a counter story and counter narrative to that and perhaps to to the narrative that are usually uh, arise in, in in Fox News for example or other mm -hmm. uh, media outlets yeah I mean some people may take advantage or may you may feel as though they are depending on your given situation but I think overall that practice is really talking about more of the systemic uh, issues that that exist economically speaking on a on a worldwide scale as well mm -hmm. and it's important when we are considering like the diasporas also to uh, uh, to consider what is happening in the homelands yeah and how both spaces are connected yes right uh, that's what that's what, what I was like highlighting when discussing the uh, briefly discussing labor in Kenya how like Edgardo goes yeah to Puerto Rico and a lot of that first issue is about Puerto Rico and what is happening in Puerto Rico mm -hmm. and the ecological crisis in Puerto Rico and I, I feel like that is a very important gesture yeah and when we talked about Latinidad in the US it's important not to erase what is happening in the homelands right yes. and this moment right of discussing remesas and discussing those tense relationships between people in the diaspora and, and the homelands is, is a, a discussion that merits uh, more attention absolutely all right how about our second email so the second email was from uh, Sabrira And she says, I am writing to you about the episode Latinas and Art, Creative Nonfiction with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. When I first click on the episode, in all honesty, I based it on first impressions. The title looked interesting, so I figure I will give it a shot. And I'm really happy to say that I wasn't disappointed. We're happy, Savira. <laughs> <laughs> When I listened, I was surprised by the experiences along with how in-depth each experience was. I was also able to relate to the author as I have done similar things and felt similar emotions in my life. When listening to how much she has to struggle to get to where she was really made me reflect on myself and my previous actions as well. I think that's great, right? That idea of that self-reflection uh, from reading or listening to someone else's experiences and kind of understanding their position and also being able to put yourself or think of yourself in a similar situation. Yeah, I had students who had a similar uh, reflection about how that interview or how Carla Cornejo's book also like uh, helped them right to think about their own families and 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 their own uh, uh, relationship to citizenship here mm -hmm. in the United States uh, or some of them like have been able to share their experiences as as undocumented right so I feel yes. like that has been like really important the discussion of that book has allowed in our classroom to to engage in important conversations mm -hmm. yeah I even brought um, the first chapter on Staten Island from that book to my people of New York class and And we talked about the day laborers and that sort of thing, as many of the students aren't from that borough. I think I have one student who's mm -hmm. from that borough in my class. And and just sort of the ways in which they consider these people and their experiences when they might be far removed from their own, uh, in contrast to those who can connect to it on more of a, a firsthand basis as mm -hmm. well. Well, we want to thank you both for those messages. We really appreciate your comments. And remember, you too can share your thoughts with us. You know, did you have a favorite Latinx superhero you want to tell us about? Were there other Afro-Latinx comics you wish we had mentioned? Let us know. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. 
Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at latinxvisions. Our email address is latinxvisions at gmail.com. We love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or honestly, wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. It helps people find the podcast. You know, the higher ratings get the algorithm to make it show up in yeah, people's Yeah, share searches. the links. Share the links. Exactly. <laughs> so, mi gente, estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time. Mm -hmm.